Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning. We're gathered every Sunday morning in person at 10.30 a.m. Our live stream is on our Facebook and our website, faithonhill.com. If you're there, welcome. You can also search Faith on Hill in either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you can get the audio podcast version of this service. We also release podcasts throughout the week, and the video versions are found at our Facebook page. The audio versions are on those platforms, as well as our website. You just have to go to the same place that our live stream is, scroll down a little bit, and you'll find where we have all of the audio versions of our podcasts. So that's our Sunday services, our 20-minute Bible study podcast that is currently going through the book of 1 Samuel, and our new podcast that we launched just last week called Talk About Anything, which is a long-form podcast. A 20-minute Bible study is short. It's designed for a commute, whereas the uh, Talk About Anything podcast is a longer-form podcast. Uh, this first episode was over an hour long, and it, you, know, you could listen to it all at once if you have time, or you could break it up and say, I'm going to listen to you know, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Uh, that's why we only release it once a month. If you're live with us uh, Sunday morning at 1030, you are welcome to come on down to the church. We're having our first church lunch in almost three years this Sunday after service is over. So if it's, say, it's 1030, 1045, get in the car, come on down. You know, service will get over around 11, 11 1130, 1140, and then we'll have a lunch together. If you have a Bible open to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to continue our study looking at Matthew chapter 12 where it says that at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Our big idea today is that we should question every tradition. We should question every tradition. Because let's be honest, people will and people are. We might as well have it be in the open and a community discussion as opposed to something that people do in private or in secret or in dark corners instead of just out in the open having these conversations in a healthy way. I, I heard of two traditions, uh, and I love the stories of both of these because I think they paint different examples. One of my favorite traditions is the Christmas tree. I love Christmas, and I love getting a Christmas tree. Did you know that for uh, English-speaking people, that the tradition of a Christmas tree came because Queen Victoria, back in the day in England, married Prince Albert, who was German, and when he came to England, he brought the tradition of a Christmas tree. They would have a little tree on a table, they would attach these little candles to it, they would light the candles, and it was uh, the beginning of that, and because the royals were doing it, it got popularized uh, in large throughout England, and then it brought over to the col you know, well, we, we weren't the colonies. By then, we were uh, America, but it came over to America, and then it was popularized here, and that's where this tradition came from. It came from Germanic roots, brought to England because a queen married a prince, brought to America through settlers, people coming over, and that's how we have the tradition of the Christmas tree in America. I love Christmas trees. Are they fun? Are they luxurious? Sure, but they, that's what they're there for. It's a fun tradition that we do at Christmas. Here's another story of a tradition with a different queen. There's a story that says a new official came to work at the palace of the czar. That's like the, the king of Russia before the communists. And he came to work at the palace of the czar, and he noticed one day after he had been there just a little while, 
he noticed that a guard would stand in a particular courtyard next to a rose bush for no good reason that he could see. There was nothing valuable there to guard other than the rose bush. There was no strategic point in the defense of the palace. There was no security reason. Why would the guard be there? So he walked on about his business, and the next day he saw, oh, there's still a guard there. What's going on? And the next day, there's still a guard there. What's going on? And he asked the captain of the guards, why is there a guard next to this rose bush in an unimportant place? It seems like he could be far more useful elsewhere. The captain of the guards said, well, that's the standing order. It's always, we've always had orders to have a guard posted next to that rose bush. So a search was made in the records to find out why this order was in place. And it turns out it went like a hundred years back to a different queen, the Tsarina, who had seen a small rosebush flowering and thought it was beautiful and did not want it stepped on by somebody who was carelessly walking through the courtyard, so she ordered a guard place next to it. And that order was never rescinded. So for the next like hundred years, for no reason, a guard was wasted guarding this rosebush. And the rosebush grew and it was there, but there was no need for a guard anymore. Two different stories of two different queens, two different stories of two types of plants. Both are traditions. Every tradition should be questioned. Why do we do Christmas trees? Well, you can do the research and find out. Why was there a guard standing next to a rose bush? Well, it turns out that there was an order that had just been there for so long, it was unquestioned like a tradition, and it was serving no purpose. Actually, it was wasting resources. Every tradition should be questioned. Now, here's what was going on with Jesus. Is Jesus and his followers on the Sabbath, this would have been uh, probably a Saturday, because Sabbath for the Jews began at sundown Friday and lasted till sundown Saturday. So they were walking through the fields, and they were, we find out later, on their way to the synagogue for Sabbath morning service. And as they're walking through the wheat fields, it was the time of year where the wheat had grown and was getting towards harvest. And I am not a farmer. I'm not an agricultural expert. But apparently, at least with some types of wheat, when it's that time of the season, you can pick the head off the wheat and go like this. And you, you blow out all of the chaff and the leftover, and there's this wheat head that's kind of gummy and tasty, and it's almost like chewing gum. It's got nutrients, and it's good for you. So they are probably just walking through, walking through the field. They reach out. They don't even move. They just do it as they walk. They reach out. They pick off a head, do the thing, and then, you know, they're eating the, the, the wheat heads. And then the Pharisees go, wait, what are you doing there? Now, I can't prove it, but it's my firm belief that the disciples did not expect this response. My firm belief is that this was common practice that time of year. Uh, there is, you can go back and uh, look in the Old Testament law. In fact, we talked about it in the 20-minute Bible study when we were going through the book of Exodus. But there were these laws that God had had in place that basically said, hey, don't harvest the corners of your fields. Don't expect to harvest 100% of what you plant. People should be able to take who are in need 
So the idea was that if you were traveling, and let's say that you were traveling down the road and you had a long journey ahead of you and you walked by a wall and there were apple trees and the apple was hanging over the stone wall and you just reached in and picked an apple off and kept on your way, nobody would question that. It was sort of a welfare system that God set up. And so the same idea, if you were just traveling through somebody's wheat field, you could just it wasn't like you weren't supposed to steal. There was an amount. But you could just pick off a couple heads of grain and have snack. And they would be expected to have the same from you in return. And it was sort of a system that they had set up. This wasn't weird. The Sabbath, this day of rest, is actually found in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 says, Remember the s- to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. On that day, you will rest from your work. For in the seventh day, back in Genesis, God ceased his work. So God gave the people a day of rest. By the way, that's a good thing. And you can read back through human history where Christianity has been uh, influential and has been a, a cultural force And this concept of having a day of rest has been a benefit and a blessing to people. Go back and read the history of the Industrial Revolution. Can you imagine what conditions would have been like for workers had there not been this cultural idea that a day of rest must happen? That's what the law says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Cease from your rest. So if somebody says, hey, can I go out and get my sickle and, you know, harvest my my wheat. They'd say, no, that's working. You're not resting. You must keep it holy by resting. Okay, Um, well, what about my animals? And so it's interesting. I did a lot of reading this week uh, from the uh, writings of rabbis and scholars about, like, what's the thought about what's work and what's not work? For example, you could go, if you were a farmer, and pretty much everyone was back then, it would be expected that you would go and in the morning, go and feed your animals. Why? Because eating is part of sustaining life, and you could eat on the Sabbath, so it was expected that you would go out and feed your animals. Now, if it involved bringing food into the barn, that's the kind of thing they would say, do that on, on, on Friday. Bring in an extra amount of food into the barn so that you don't have to go do that work on Saturday. Now, that makes sense. So go out and you feed the animals. Well, what if I notice that one of my chickens have laid an egg? Leave it there and go get it tomorrow. Now, do I think that picking a chicken egg out is work? No. But that was the decision, was that that would be harvesting, whereas this is feeding. It was interesting. I was reading something about fire and, uh, and wood, and they said you, could, you can take wood and put it into the fire because you need fire to stay warm. If it's the wintertime, you got a, a wood stove, you got to do that. But if you're going to go chop wood, that's something you have to do the day before, the day after, because that is work. Here's where I'm coming back to this. I believe that the disciples were just doing something that everybody would have done. They were eating. And they just plucked a grain. It's it's the equivalent of, I went hiking this week a couple of times, and it's the equivalent of being down a trail, and sometimes you go down a hiking trail, and there's like blackberries or uh, salmon berries or different different kinds of uh, little wild fruit or berries on the trail, and you pick a couple, and you eat them, and you keep walking. Nobody thinks that I'm doing farming, right? My suspicion is that this was common, that these disciples had been doing this since they were boys, and that everybody else did it too. But here come the religious leaders going, aha, aha, you broke the law. 
And I, I guarantee they knew that the Pharisees were there. It's not like the Pharisees like jumped out from behind a bush and they twisted their mustaches like some kind of comical old-timey villain. Ooh, I've got you. Like they knew they were there. I guarantee they did not think this was anything big. The disciples just ate some wheat. But the Pharisees, the religious, went after them. That's why I think it's okay and appropriate to question every tradition. Question every tradition. Were the disciples breaking the Sabbath? Jesus didn't seem to think so. But the religious tradition was being given equal weight with the Word of God. Jesus replied to them and said, Haven't you read about King David? What he did when he and his companions were hungry. He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do so, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read about it in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate uh, on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? What's that all about? Well, they would have known King David, one of the most famous people in their whole history. See, he was on the run. He wasn't king yet. And the current king, Saul, was trying to kill him. So he and his men were on the run, and they had no provisions and no food, and they hadn't eaten in days. And so they arrive at the tabernacle, the house of meeting, where the people would go to worship God. And there was food there that was sacred and only to be eaten by the priests. But the priest gave them the food so that they wouldn't die. Nobody had a problem with that. Jesus looks at them and goes, Okay, that's a head of wheat, and you guys are freaking out over it. But in the house of God, there is bread that only the priests are to eat. It's, it's set apart. It's sacred. And yet, we know that David and his men ate that so that they wouldn't die. And then he uses another example. And, and, and what he's doing, Jesus is giving us a decision matrix. What's a decision matrix? A decision matrix is a series of um, indicators or data points by which we can make a decision. You know, uh, you're driving down the road, you're on a long road trip, do we pull over here and stop or do we keep driving? And there's a lot of different indicators, data points that you use to make your decision. That's your decision matrix. You know, next rest stop, 42 miles. And you look and you say, well, I think we can make it that. You know, you do the math in your head of how fast you're going, how long that's going to take, uh, or, you know, Where's your gas gauge? Hey, do we pull over here? There's gas here. Next gas station, 100 miles. Well, where's my gas gauge at? These are data points that you use to make your decision. Jesus is giving them data points. He uses an example from their history with King, uh, King David, and you can find this story in 1 Samuel 21, verse 6. And he says, hey, in our own history, we know that these guys did this thing that in any other circumstance would have been terrible, but situationally, God was okay with it. And you're mad about them picking a little head of wheat on their way to the synagogue? And then he uses another data point from their present experience. He says, right now it's the Sabbath. In the temple in Jerusalem, there are priests who are desecrating the Sabbath. What he means by that is there are priests working. You can go check out Numbers chapter 28, verse 9, and there's other places in the Old Testament too, but this is a place you can go and see some of the duties of the priest on the Sabbath, the things that they had to carry out, and it was work, right? Like on a Sunday morning, I get up and I say words, you know? Uh, on a Saturday, the priest would get up and they would slaughter animals and then clean it up, and then they would like make bread and they would light candles and take things out and do things. They were putting in like manual labor, 
That's not Sabbathing. But Jesus said, nobody has a problem with that. And then he uses their history, their present experience, and then he uses the scripture. He goes to the word of God, and he quotes both Hosea and the prophet Micah. This is just coincidental, but I think it's interesting. He quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and Micah chapter 6, verse 6, where he says this whole thing about uh, the following. He says, um, if you had known what it means, verse 7, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would have not condemned the innocent. So he's saying, if you had understood the scriptures, you would not have condemned these men who, by the way, have done nothing wrong. If you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's from both Hosea and Micah, two prophets from the Old Testament. What does that mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's actually the very same thing as what he has said with their past history and their present experience. Is that God has these rules in place and they're there for a reason and they're there for a good reason. But don't make the rules God. The rules are from God. The traditions are from God. But they're not God. And God's goal was for people to live. And God's goal was to show love and mercy and justice. I mean, think about what what does Jesus say? He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment was not how good you could keep the Sabbath. The greatest commandment was how many times you could do this thing or how many times you could not do that thing. The greatest commandment was to love God and love people. And they're worried because somebody was hungry and they ate. And by context, not only are they trying to make a big thing out of a little thing, but they're putting something on somebody that's not even in the Bible. Again, that's why every tradition should be open for debate. Every way of doing things should be fair game for questions. And I wanted to put this in real-world scenarios because, let's be honest, we could have these sort of arbitrary uh, you know, conversations about theoretical things, but let's talk about real-world scenarios. And I'm going to give a few real-world scenarios that have been real debates among Christians in America but I have specifically chosen a couple of scenarios that are not debates we are having as a church. And the reason is that people get really emotional about their traditions. They get invested in their traditions. And so I'm trying to give us a decision matrix, a framework for questioning traditions without bringing up something that might be a divisive divisive issue in our church so that we can take the emotions out of it. Okay? Follow me on this. So, in large parts of the church, large parts of the church, they have priests. And this is found in all of the branches of the church. The Catholic Church has priests. The Orthodox tradition has priests. Even some of the Protestant traditions have priests, especially the Anglican Church, although to a lesser extent, some Lutheran and other churches function as priests, even if they don't have the name. So there's this idea of a priest in the church. So we, uh, we apply our Jesus-given decision matrix and try to walk through that. Why is it that we don't have priests? Why don't I? I, am, I make this clear. I am not a priest. 
I don't think the guys who call themselves priests are really priests either, but that's a whole other thing. Why is it that we reject that? Well, we look through the Scripture. We don't see it in the Scripture. In fact, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says that all believers are priests before God and that Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the one to whom we make confession. Jesus is the one who goes to God on our behalf. Not a priest, not a saint. Jesus is. So we don't see it in Scripture. And in our experience, right, we, we know that God works through all kinds of people. All kinds of people. There's not some special group that only, God only speaks through them. And then we look at history. Oh, okay. Now I can understand where some of this came from. Uh, some of the traditions about priests. You know, as I, as I deep-dived... As I deep-dived history again uh, for my grad school a couple years ago, you know, I, I, I read history all the time. It's primarily what I read. I love history. And 20 years ago, in, in my undergrad, uh, I did church history. And then about 10 years ago, 8 years ago, I revisited church history, uh, but it was more, I was exploring some, like, more, like, obscure corners for my personal interest. And then two years ago, I had to really revisit church history overall uh, for my grad school. And one of the things that I walked away with that I was really struck by this last go-around was the concept of priests as the Catholic Church understands it. And one of the things I found was interesting was this whole thing about priests can't get married. Where did that come from? Well, a lot of where it came from was actually trying to solve a problem. There was a problem of corruption. There was a problem of nepotism kind of not unlike some of the things that certain parts of Protestant churches in America are dealing with in our day. But these problems of corruption and nepotism, and so their solution was the priests cannot get married. That was their solution. And there's a lot of reason why it made sense within their cultural context. So sometimes you question a tradition and you look back and you say, I, I don't see any scripture for it. I don't see a good reason to do it today in our present experience, but why was it? Oh, we look at history. Oh, there's a reason for that. And maybe it made sense at the time and doesn't now. And I would tell any priest or nun that they should feel free to uh, do as the Lord leads them. But there's a reason why it made sense a while ago, hundreds of years ago. I can understand that decision. And that's something to think about. Like maybe there's a tradition in a church that came up, like in a local church, a, uh, uh, you know, there's a church here, and they have this tradition, and people are like, why do you guys do that, or don't do that, or make a big deal about that? And it made sense 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. It might not make sense today, but it made sense then, and I can have some, oh, okay, I get that. Let's figure out a way to move beyond that, but I get it. Here's another real-world scenario. Dancing. There are literally whole movies made about Christians or churches or religious people uh, who are against dancing. Where did that come from? Well, it's the funny thing is, if you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, uh, there are far more Bible verses about dancing as a positive thing than there are as dancing as a negative thing. In fact, I mean, you can do this yourself, right? But I just did word searches. Dance, danced, past tense, dancing, present active, you know, all these things. What, where is that in the Bible? The far majority, I mean, it's like eight to one. Dancing is, is positive. 
the people of Israel danced. The people of Israel, when Moses was there, danced. The people of Israel, during King David's time, danced. The people danced, and it was good. And there are promises in the Scripture about God turning our mourning to dancing and singing. So where did dancing become a bad thing? Well, it's kind of ebbed and flowed. Uh, in the you know, 3rd and 4th century, there were early Christian leaders like uh, Augustine or Tertullian who were just against dancing. Why is that? Because their experience with it, their experience was that, you know what? Dancing was the thing that we did when we were sinners. Dancing was the thing that we did when we were against Jesus. Dancing was the thing that we did before we were Christians. And we don't do that anymore because dancing for them was 100% linked to idolatry and immorality. It was 100% linked to that. It's like friends of mine who will never touch a drop of alcohol. And you say, why? Because for them it was 100% linked to sin and pain and misery that they have rejected and walked away from because they follow Jesus and they live in his freedom and his victory now. The same is true for uh, music sometimes, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I loved certain types of music, especially like 70s, 80s, big arena rock, uh, when I was lifting weights, you know, back in the day. And, you know, I hear Thunderstruck by ACDC, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to lift some weights, you know. But I know people who they hear that, that stuff, they hear Thunderstruck, they hear Zeppelin, whatever, and they're just like, oh, that's the time that I took acid, or hey, that's the time that I was really messed up and this happened, and for them it's nothing good. Then there was a, a, after like the early church fathers who got rid of dancing, they were like, dancing's bad. Years later, there was this guy, Francis of Assisi, you might have heard of him, and he would dance while he preached. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if I got up here and I was like, hey, Jesus loves you, you know? Like, it'd be weird. But apparently, he danced while he preached. He would get so excited about Jesus and what Jesus did for people that he would just be like, can you believe that we were wicked and we were sinful and Jesus came and took that all away. Woo! And he'd do a little dance. And if you're only on the audio version, you missed that dance. So our experience says that dancing is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It can be used for good things. It can be used for bad things. But we can understand where a tradition might come from a generation where dancing was 100% bad. And we, you know, maybe a new generation comes along that doesn't have any of those issues, and they say, it's not, it's not a big deal. And people freak out, why? We can't do that. Well, three generations ago, they got rid of dancing because it was really bad for them. But maybe it's okay for us to, like, you know, do a little head bopping if, if a catchy song comes on. Let me walk you through another real-world scenario. The Sabbath. This is the scenario here. I grew up in a non-traditional church experience. We didn't make a big deal about the Sabbath. I took Sunday off, but that was it. But my friends who grew up in more traditional church experiences, Sabbath was a big deal. I had a friend, you could not go over to his house to play. He could not come over to my house to play because his parents were very traditional in their upbringing. And they said, no, this is the day of rest. It's the Sabbath. And so they didn't do anything. Where does this come from? Well, again, history, history shows us that there was this idea of a day of rest um, that we see throughout history. Experience tells us that people need to rest, but Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of that law, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that Jesus is our rest. Now, is it good for people to rest? Yes. We try to take a day of rest, a day where we haven't just packed our schedules so full of everything. And that's what people do, right? They just pack their schedules full, 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 and they go, 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 go. And maybe that's why, oh, I don't have time for church. I'd love to go to church, but I don't have time. Well, is it because you haven't organized your life with God first to put church as a priority? And so by the time you hit Sunday, you have nothing left in the tank. Or you just go, 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 go. And then like every three weeks, you just crash and you've got nothing left. So we see, hey, our experience tells us that people need rest. And we see through tradition, oh, in history, we know that that's been the case throughout human, human history. But Scripture tells us that we aren't bound by a particular day of rest. History tells us that the church has always met on Sunday, that from the very beginning of the church, Christians began to meet on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But we aren't bound to a particular day of rest, the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 4. Rather, we live in the rest that comes through Jesus. What I'm trying to do is to walk us through, because the greatest barrier to a well-reasoned position, the greatest barrier to us having a position on anything that's built on, you know, the the Word of God, that's built on experience, that's built on a knowledge of history, the greatest barrier is pride and rebellion. I will not change my position. Why? Pride. I have pride about it. I don't do this thing. I always do this thing, and it's a source of pride. And I won't change. That's usually the religious response. Maybe there is something that you've always done or always not done, and God's calling you to change, but it's actually rebellion to God that keeps us from it. We need to question every tradition so that we can know Jesus better. These Pharisees were so caught up in keeping the Sabbath that they missed the whole point. Rest, freedom, peace embodied in Jesus Christ. These Pharisees were so bound up in keeping the traditions that they didn't understand that God didn't care about their sacrifices. He wanted their hearts to be right before him. And if their hearts were right, then their sacrifices would be beautiful. But if their hearts were wrong, then their sacrifices were meaningless. You keep the Sabbath every day, big deal. You reject Jesus, the Messiah, the the God in human flesh. We need to question every tradition so that we can have clarity. Is this thing keeping me from seeing Jesus better? Or is this tradition keeping people outside of the walls of the church from seeing Jesus better? Let me finish with things that are controversial, but I'll be honest about them. There are things within the church that are off-putting to the average unchurched person. Christian nationalism, by and large, is off-putting to the average unchurched person. We need to remove those barriers and those traditions everywhere that we can. At the same time, this is the beginning of Pride Month. Somebody asked me a week ago, an unchurched person asked me a week ago, hey, where does your church, is it a welcoming church? Is it a safe church? Is it an affirming church? And I said, we are welcoming. I mean, my goodness, our church is so welcoming. And I'm not just saying that. We really legitimately are. I'm so proud of our people for that. And I hope we're safe. And we have had people attend Faith on Hill 
who are openly gay. We've had people who attend the church who are uh, trans. And they have hopefully felt welcomed and hopefully felt safe. We are not affirming. And my thing is, Pride Month begins is, you know what? Pride Month to me is the thing where once a year corporations lie. <laughs> uh, somebody posted a thing this week, uh, and it was like every corporation's uh, social media, and they all have some kind of version of their logo with the rainbow flag. And then their social media accounts for the Middle East or for other parts of the world. And it was like nothing, right? Because they're lying. They're not really for, they're not really for uh, gay rights. They're just for the corporate thing of looking like they are. I mean, I'm not questioning some people in those corporations are, absolutely. But let's not pretend. We just tell the truth. We want to be consistent. Jesus loves people. Jesus is for people. Jesus is for hope and change. Jesus is for all those things. But when we look, like, what's a tradition? I want to get rid of anything that would keep people from knowing Jesus better. And if it's the kind of music we play, if it's our, uh, you know what, everybody, everybody's pretty casual on Sunday mornings, but if we all found out that by wearing a suit and tie, it would get, connect with people better, we should be do open to doing that. But when it's the message of God, freedom from addiction, living in God's morality, and that goes both ways. I mean, if you've been with me long enough, if this is your first sermon, you might think, oh, he's one of those evangelicals just out to get the gays. Oh my goodness, no. If you've been hearing me preach long enough, you'll know that I, I am first and foremost going to call out the hypocrisy in the church before I talk about anything outside the church. But what I'm talking about is every tradition should be questioned because if at the end I look through it from a historical, an experiential, a scriptural lens and, I'm, and I come to a conclusion that this tradition is good and it's something we should continue to hold firm to, then I'm going to hold firm to it stronger. Not because it's just what we've always done, but because I know it's what we should do. And if a tradition is either something that was good at one point, but it's not good now, or it was never good to begin with, but we've just always done it, then we can throw it away and be healthier and be better and be in a better place. Every tradition should be questioned. Everything should be up for debate because we want to know Jesus better and we want to bring more people to him. And if your experience with Christianity was bad and you kind of go, I think though it might have just been bad because of all the tradition and the garbage and the, the human-made rules that have nothing to do with Jesus. And I'd like to find the real Jesus. He is there and he is reaching out to you. And in your heart, you just need to respond and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I think you're real. Will you help me to know you? And I believe firmly that he will answer that prayer.